Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Good morning, everyone. And I know it's still January and many people are where it's cold. And we're going to be talking about a cold book today. But anyone who's been a longtime listener of Book Lights knows that I'm kind of obsessed with Greenland and polar exploration and all that stuff. So you'll know why I'm so excited that we have Henriette here today with her brand new book called Terra Nova. And if you haven't read her yet, you're in for a treat. And I'm going to read her bio here so you can get to know her. Henriette, oh, and I didn't ask her how to pronounce her last name. Henriette, are you there? How do I pronounce your last name? Lazaridis. Okay, well, I probably would have guessed right. Okay. (laughs) Henriette Lazaridis (laughs) is the author of The Clover House, which was a Boston Globe bestseller. Her short work has appeared in Elle, The New York Times, New England Review, The Millions, and more. And she has earned a Massachusetts Cultural Council Artist Grant. She's a graduate of Middlebury College, Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, and the University of Pennsylvania. She has taught English at Harvard, and she now teaches at Grub Street in Boston. She founded the Drum Literary Magazine and currently runs the Kruna Writing Workshop in Northern Greece. She also writes Mm -hmm. a Substack newsletter, The Entropy Hotel, and I put a link to her Substack and also to her website, on the talk. So if you're listening live or if you're listening later, you can click either one of those links and get connected with her. Her website's beautiful and there's all kinds of fascinating information there. So definitely go give that a um, visit. And without any further delay, Henrietta, I know you're there because I forgot. <laughs> I should have asked you that before we started the show, but thank you for helping me out. How are you? Oh, no worries. I'm really well, and I'm really excited to be in the company of a fellow uh, North, well, a fellow polar uh, obsessive, because that's obviously (laughs) my, I I share your obsession, though mine is at the other end of the globe (laughs) from from Greenland. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) I love that. Well, can you tell everybody who's listening about your new book about Terra Nova and why they should run out and grab a copy? Besides Antarctica? Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, Terra Nova is a story about two fictional Antarctic explorers and the woman who loves them both, who is back in London, and this is in 1910. So she, Viola, becomes involved with the suffrage movement that's going on at that time in London, and she is a photographer like um, her lover who's on the expedition with her husband. And so she begins doing a photographic exhibit involving the hunger strikers of the suffrage movement. But in any case, the narrative focuses on both the men's journey in Antarctica and Viola's sort of journey in London, and then they come together. I don't want to give any spoilers out, so I'll just leave it there. Um, We can talk, we'll talk more about other things. (laughs) Well, I wanted to ask because it takes place in 1910 and it sounds like her husband and her lover are down there. Do the husband and the lover know that she loves them both or is 
Is that a spoiler? Excuse me. This is something that the reader and they find out uh, pretty early on in the book. But no, the the husband doesn't know. So this is Ah, one of the one of the things that affects the men's relationship as they're in a place where they need each other for survival. It's also a moment when the husband says, "You know, if we were if we were anywhere but here, I would kill you." (laughs) But he can't afford to kill his um, expedition photographer for many reasons. So right, yeah, right. Don't know at the start. Okay, okay. Yeah, that makes things much more complicated. Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to create a story where the the men certainly have their mission is to be first to the South Pole. They're racing against a fictional uh, Norwegian um, explorer. And so I've slotted them into the historical record just before the real explorer, Robert Falcon Scott, who was racing against Roald Amundsen to be first. So I've stuck my guys in at 1910. So they are supposedly, you know, they're racing to be first. And they're down there um, uh, hoping to hoping to be first. And I forget where I was going with this, but <laughs> but um, <laughs> they, they – the the photographer is there because he he's got to take sort of the photographic record of what they're doing. Right. His, his mission is to make them look like like noble heroes, of course, by taking all the beautiful Polish photographs. Right, and it's interesting because I I don't know if you've read it. If you haven't, as a fellow icy place person, you'll love it. Um, in the Kingdom of Ice, um, about the USS Jeanette trying to get to the North Pole. Um, oh, it's of course it's not it's not fiction, but it's it reads like fiction. It's amazing, but it's actually in 1881. But um, if you haven't read it, oh my God, you're gonna love it. But <laughs> yeah, I didn't I know until. Oh, great! No, go ahead. Yeah, definitely yeah. read it. But I was I was gonna say that. I didn't know until I read that and then hearing you talk about it too, that race to be first between the countries was really something in the late 1800s, 1900s, because the only parts of the globe that hadn't been actually mapped and, and, you know, stepped on was the North pole and the South pole and each country wanted to be first and they were throwing money at it to try and, you know, be first, I guess, just like the space race, right, to be the first on the moon kind of thing. But I don't know that people know that that was such a big push for these countries to get to the South Pole and the North Pole, right? It really was. And there was, it's sort of known as the the great age of Antarctic exploration, specific, I suppose you could say of polar exploration. But there was this real, right. um, I want to say obsession, but I don't want to overuse that word, but to be first exactly for the reason that you're describing. And I think it also captured the imagination, especially of um, the United Kingdom, it sort of fit with the idea of you know the the gentleman, the heroic striver, um, reaching the tops of mountains and sort of a weird kind of. They were really keen on amateurs. It was important for you to be a gentleman who did these feats of of endurance <laughs> and exploration without funding. Although of course you needed funding, so there was that sort of dichotomy of, or not dichotomy, but a blurring of. Well, I'm an amateur, but also now I need to ask you to fund my expedition so that I can go and be a gentleman who's going to do this noble thing, um, which was sort of that was something that gave rise to the question that inspired me writing 
in writing Terra Nova was uh, what happens if you go to a place like Antarctica in a race like this to be first and you're not first? What happens if you maybe respond not in a very gentlemanly way? Like I, that, that mm-hmm. was the question that I was asking myself when I began to write Terra Nova. And that's why these characters, by the way, are fictional because um, I needed to invent characters who would behave in ways that were honestly more interesting to me than um, Robert Falcon Scott, even though I find him incredibly fascinating, but he was very noble and noble characters are great, but ignoble characters. They have no story. More interesting. Yeah. 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 So that was part of that. The story is always in the brokenness. And if there isn't any, there's no, (laughs) there's no story to poke at. Scott was amazing um, in that, you know, he showed up at the South Pole and he found Roald Amundsen's flag already there. And he just sort of said, well, I've, I've been beaten. We tried our best. Uh, we, I'm sure we made mistakes, but we tried our best. And now we must turn around and go home. Uh, oh, he put it in very <laughs> elegant language, which I can't even attempt to, to quote here. But um, he did. He was very noble, although his story is a tragedy. It just, you know, he they died on the way back. But, yeah, if you oh. want to have an interesting story, you have to invent people who are really flawed. <laughs> Um, right in, in compelling right. ways. So hopefully I've done that with with my fictional characters. But yeah, it sounds like it. And and it's also we always as as readers we always want to see someone grow. So if you start with someone who is already a really good, well-rounded human, there's usually not unless you put them in a tragedy on the page. But there's usually not a way to you know grow them so you do need somebody who's a little bit broken right right if they're if they're already all set where are they going to (laughs) go right right well to antarctica Um, (laughs) (laughs) so the other thing i wanted to ask you about because when i read the kingdom of ice about the uss Jeanette, i was shocked about that in the 1800s they had no that particular ship got the very first electric lights from Alexander Graham Bell and they never worked the whole thing. So like at night, it's really dark. And I just imagine, and they didn't have, you know, the, all the sonar and stuff that we have now. And here they are going somewhere no one's ever been. And when you were researching for that, I mean, did you, put those kind of things like in, in the book, do people realize in 1910 that they didn't have, you know, there would be no way to contact people and say, we're in trouble. Right. 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 They, they so the, the one answer to, to the question is yes, I, I did research all of this stuff, but my fascination with Antarctica starts from uh, when I was about seven years old and I saw a documentary about Robert Falcon Scott. So, Essentially, my entire life, I have been dipping into bits of information and articles or anything that sort of came my way about Antarctica, I would dip into it. Never, never honestly a full scholarly immersion by any stretch, but just it was always there as a fascination for me. So when I actually started writing the novel, I actually embargoed all all reading in that area because I didn't want my story or my language to be influenced by what I would read in the journals because there was so much material. Scott left all these journals which were found 
when they found his body months after his final group of four, when they all perished. Um, so there's tons of material, as as you know from reading wow. that Jeanette. Um, and I sort of right. told myself, you can't go there. You can't touch that stuff now because I just wanted to have my head free of what had been written before. But then I would have to look stuff up. So I was relying on my memory, right. but then I would be like, oh, wait a second. I was, they would be using a Primus stove. So I was like, okay, what kind of fuel does a Primus stove burn? And what does it smell like? Right, and, okay. right. and, I, and I, would, I would write stuff, and then I would maybe go back and check, like, hold on a second. How many, how many miles could a, could a person pull a sled or sledge, as I call it in the novel, because I use the British term, um, you know, how many miles could they go in a day? So I'd have to check those details. But um, so it, it was a weird kind of thing where, yes, I did a lot of research, but I also had done it over the course of like 50 years. <laughs> almost. Um, with the Your whole part, life you were I researching did. for this book. <laughs> Kind of, <laughs> kind of, and looking at the beautiful photographs. I mean, there's some incredible, right. the photographs that um, Herbert Ponting took when he was the expedition photographer for Scott, and also Frank Hurley, who took all the ones uh, for Shackleton's expedition. They're just beautiful. Um, so even if you don't ever want to read anything about the terrible suffering that these people, and it, it's always men, at least back then, that they right. went, you can just look at these gorgeous images. But, but, you know, to go to your question about the darkness, this was something that really fascinated me. The idea of an Antarctic night where it's just right night for, for weeks. Um, right. I had to set my story during the Antarctic summer because that would make sense from an expedition perspective. And I've also compressed the time of the expedition. Oftentimes they would go and they would, they were actually trying to do scientific research when they went to Antarctica or Greenland or, or the North pole. They were all the people on the expedition, you know, they were, they were collecting samples. They were taking measurements. They were mapping. Um, And so that Mm -hmm. adds plenty of time to any expedition, but I, for the sake of the fiction, I, I took that element out and I streamlined it. So my guys are there on the march during the Antarctic summer. So I'm dealing with a situation where at night, as, as I, I, I don't know where I got this idea, if it's true or not, but um, they put sacks over the dog's heads because the dogs won't sleep if it's too bright. I don't, I don't know that that's actually made for good prose. So it's in there. Yeah, that's but, right. Yeah, they're dealing with a sun that never sets. <laughs> So right, and at least right, marginally warmer. Warmer should be in quotation okay. marks, so um, right, right, because still freezing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like minus so, minus forty Fahrenheit. Yeah. So did they know in 1910 that it was that the light was all light or all dark down there? Did they know that then? They they did. Yeah, they did. It, oh, okay. it was sort of understood how, how days lengthened and shortened. But, but you know, if you go back far enough, the, Antarctica would have been, it was, a, I mean, for a long time, nobody knew there was anything down there for, for right, centuries. Right. Right? Nobody knew that there was a continent there. And then maybe people began to map the edge and be like, oh, okay, there's, there's a landmass here. What is this landmass? Um, but, yes, it took, it took time for people to, to actually reach that the that landmass. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was so funny reading these books about that time period where we were racing out to basically, you know, map every inch of the globe 
And so the North Pole and the South Pole, they didn't know, you know, what was down there. And um, in that in that other book I was talking about, they are trying to go to the North, and they have pictures of old maps in there where they thought it was mm. a tropical paradise up at the top because there's right. a Gulf Stream that comes down that's warm. So they just assumed it's a warm tropical paradise up there. <laughs> so it's yeah, wild. Yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> There's in one of the books that sort of was in my head as I was writing this novel and coming up with the idea for it was weirdly enough Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, because Frankenstein oh. and his creation, you know, Frankenstein and the monster. I wanted my characters of Edward Haywood, the expedition leader, and James Watts, the photographer. They kind of have a similar relationship that the monster and Frankenstein have in that. They create each other. Then they need each other. They well, they can't exist without each other. Um, and also in Frankenstein, the the monster and Frankenstein are kind of chasing each other in the North Pole. And the whole, if you take a look at the novel, like we all think about the horror movies and stuff, but if you look at the novel, which is so fascinating, it starts with um, a man writing letters home to his sister. He's saying, I'm about to embark on a mission to the North Pole. I expect that we will find exactly what you just described, like tr- basically a tropical paradise. We will find a tropical right. paradise. <laughs> and, he's, and he's headed to the North Pole. Uh, and, of course, it turns out to be different. And he runs into Victor Frankenstein, who then tells the story of his monster. But anyway, um, they definitely. I didn't realize that he was be... actually up at the North Pole. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Um so that was that was in my head definitely and and it certainly helps as a for me it was a good novel to have in my head because of course Mary Shelley is the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft who was one of our earliest um expounder of the need for women's rights and then writing about the suffrage movement in 1910 oh. as I was with my character of Viola, it kind of felt good to me to have Frankenstein just up there in my head, Frankenstein and Mary Shelley <laughs> and Mary Wollstonecraft and, and women's rights. Yeah. It's all kind of the stew that's in your head when you're writing a novel. Right. Well, I was going to ask you too, is since you've loved Antarctica like your whole life, where how long did it take this germ of an idea to become a book like what inspired you to go hey I'll make fake explorers that can go right before and how did that all happen for you I think I've been kind of holding this question in my mind as I as I grew up (laughs) from from age seven when I thought oh Antarctic explorers are always noble and this is wonderful (laughs) as I got older I began to every time I thought about Scott I'd think huh you know what was that like the moment when he got to the to the South Pole and there's Roald Amundsen's flag and it's sort of the question kind of matured with me and became more complicated as I grew up it just I couldn't let go of it and I I just, it got in my head as this this question that I wanted to explore and that I had to do with fictional characters because I I admire Scott too much. (laughs) I didn't want to solve it. Well, I mean, he wouldn't Mm -hmm. wouldn't have worked because he didn't do anything complicated. Um, And so it just, I couldn't let go of the idea. And I remember getting to a point where I was a little nervous about how to begin and 
where to begin. And finally, I actually realized if I didn't sit down and start writing right away, it was going to become almost like a writer's block. And I don't actually believe in writer's block. It's like, get your butt in the chair and write. And so right. I did that. Uh-huh. And it was, it, was, it was December. It was like an early December of quite a few years ago. And I just sat down and stuck these two men on the Antarctic ice and pushed them forward. I'd done a lot of note taking. I had thought about it for a long time. I had figured out that there would be the two men, and that there would be a third character, that there would be a woman to make a sort of triangle because that's unstable in a way that a pair isn't. Um, right. But, it, 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 yeah, it just sort of became a question that I could, couldn't could stop thinking about. And the best way for me to think about it turned out to be writing a novel about it. Um, and, to, and to expand it into other questions about ambition and rivalry and betrayal and, and sort of authenticity, those were all questions that once I started writing, I realized, okay, you have these issues now. This is about, it's not just a story about Antarctic exploration. It's not just a story about women's suffrage. It's about these other themes and issues, which became other questions that I wanted to ask myself and then explore in the, in the writing of the novel. Right. So I hope, I hope that for readers, it, it, it's a, a process of coming across these and then hopefully giving, giving the reader something to think about, like, hmm, I don't know, how would I do that? What, what is the right answer? What is the right situation or the right response to a situation? But I'm hoping I'm putting the questions out there in the form of the story. Right. Right. I love that. And, and I also wanted to talk about your other book, The Clover House. I was reading up about mm. that one, and that one also has the, you know, the early 1900 kind of time period. Um, I realize it starts in present day, but then I think it goes back to 1940, or it has secrets from then. Yeah, or, it goes back to I, the, Are you intrigued by that time period? Uh, yes, I am. And um, as a, I'm first generation Greek American, both my parents came over when they were in their mid thirties from Greece. And I, I grew up hearing cause we spent, I spent always all my summers in Greece with family and I grew up hearing their stories of the second world war, which they had these wonderful adventure stories of childhood escapades and things. And if, if they ever were in danger, at least it was never, they, they never actually were harmed uh, beyond being hungry because the Germans blockaded all food in Greece and things like that. But my parents were quite lucky. So they had these stories that were fascinating to me, but they also, I tried for a long time to write a novel around those stories and it, it kept failing until, until finally I realized they're happy stories. They don't go anywhere. Um, you have right. to make them sad. And so I decided, <laughs> right. as I, I remember, like, as I was working, I kept coming up with, like, different ways to write this novel, like, time and time again. And finally, I was like, hold on a second. The real character here is going to be this young woman I'm going to invent who is going to be trying to figure out what happened to her mother during the war. And the stories that I'm going to use from my mother's childhood, well, basically they can't be my mother's stories because those are all happy. So I just were happy. Uh, right. Oftentimes like the window dressing, like the house or the, the, the locations are from my mother's childhood, but wherever something went well in my mother's experience, I kind of, took it into <laughs> tragic territory. <laughs> so, Sorry, Mom. <laughs> um, yeah. 
So so sort of like seventy percent of that novel is said in the present day as the young woman is trying to she's exploring, uh literally sifting through possessions she's been uh given by her uncle when he dies. Um and she's piecing together a kind of a family mystery. And then certain chapters take you back to the time of the Italian occupation of the city of Patra. Um, and you see sort of the real events that, that the daughter is sort of coming close to figuring out. So I guess you could say, I mean, I really must have a thing for two timelines because the two novels that, that, that do that, <laughs> if not timelines, two narrative threads at the same time. Right. Right. Well, um, what was it? It sounds like from your bio that you've always loved writing and telling stories. But what was your journey like to actually get your book published? Because it's a long and winding road. (laughs) But readers are always curious how that happened for you. (laughs) It is a long and winding road. It was it, it. Of course, you know, it changes sometimes. It's really fast and sometimes it's deadly slow and it's right. such a learning process the whole way around. When I, I had been an academic for many years, and when I left academia, it was with the idea of like, oh, my gosh, I was actually supposed to be a novelist. How did I end up in this weird detour that where I became an academic? <laughs> Hold on a second. And I changed course, and I had this crazy notion that I would send work out and everything would be great, which we know is not a thing. It's just not the reality of publishing. And so this was something I really had to reckon with. And I was, I did all kinds of things to sabotage myself and hedge my bets and play it safe and all these other phrases that we have, but they, they were all happening. I was making them all happen. And and what that meant was I was not making my writing happen in a, in a good way. And then I finally got serious and, and started working hard, which again, that doesn't guarantee anything, sadly. Um, Right. But as I was alluding to before, I tried to write many I, I suppose you could say there are many, not just one or two, but many novels in a figurative drawer somewhere of mine right. that will never see the light of day because they were the ones that I learned on. And I had a whole other one that, that, that has nothing to do with the Clover House that just, it, that's the one I learned on. Um, and then the Clover House, I kept trying, as I was saying, all these different ways and learning as I went until I finally understood, okay, this is what I need. This is what you need. You need a character who's looking for something. She's, And then it made sense. So I right. have to say I was quite lucky. I you know, found an agent with some trial and tribulation. It's not easy. Um, right. And then I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. We went, he went on submission with the novel on a Thursday, and by Monday – I had offers to interview with with editors, meaning, you know, there was interest. Wow. So I was on the phone with editors. Well, and that was lovely. What it meant was yes. that the next time around, I was like, oh, this is great. So my agent's going to go on submission with my manuscript, and in two days, I'll have an offer. <laughs> and next week, not yes. how uh-huh. it works. Right. No. <laughs> the, the Clover House was a lovely fluke, and it's you know, more realistic that it is just a more – it takes time. It takes patience. It can be maddening. You just 
when you're mm-hmm. on submission, whether it's because you're querying an agent or because you're, you're, you're already, your agent has your novel on submission somewhere, you get going with your other work and you keep at it. And as I, I tell my students all the time, the writing has to be a reward because it may be the only reward. It's the only reward you can guarantee. If you enjoy the writing process, that is bank. That's everything. It may be the right. only reward you'll get. So you better like it because if you don't, then well, don't be wasting your time. And it's the only thing so, we I mean, have control over. We can't make people buy the book. We can't make editors buy the book. The only thing we can control is writing the book. So <laughs> Exactly, which is wonderful because it's, 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 an, it's kind of freeing because you can say, all right, that means I, I really need to make sure that I enjoy this. And also, I should be doing things that I enjoy. I should be writing the book in a way that I enjoy. I shouldn't be trying to think about what does the market want? What does so-and-so right. want? No, no. It's what do you want? What makes you happy? And then also, like, the stakes are weirdly very low. So go for it. Like, try stuff because you can always fail, and that's okay. For most people, it's right. okay. For sure. That's when you learn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Well, we're we're running out of time, but are you on social media? How can readers get in touch with you after they read the book and they're excited? I am on Facebook under, you know, my name Henriette Lazaridis and I um I'm on Instagram, Saint it's writer Henriette. I don't tweet, but that's my hash my handle, but I that's don't I'm not on Twitter. Um okay. but, but uh Instagram there's writer Henriette and there's also the Entropy Hotel. That's my sub stack that I write once a month. I, I send something out about creative and athletic challenges. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I had a fantastic time, and good luck with the book. Everyone run out and grab Terra Nova. It is going to be a fascinating read. Thank you so much for being here, Henriette. It was great chatting with you. It was great chatting, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on Book Lights. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.